Hello, hello, hello. There Welcome back to Center Ed Teaching, a CPETS podcast that we put out weekly. Last week, we were talking about social and emotional learning and supporting that in schools, so it seemed prudent to completely switch gears and now talk about uh, federal education policy and the implications that it has for states and, most importantly, schools. Um, to tackle this topic alone, I am joined by Roberta. Hey! And the incredibly fired up Brian Vprec this morning. Hello. <laughs> nice. Um, so to begin this conversation talking about federal education policy, we really have to talk about what it is, and that is currently the Every Student Succeeds Act. Um, so for new listeners, if you don't know what the Every Student Succeeds Act, we'll kind of just do a brief history and catch you up. So in 1965, as part of the War on Poverty, uh, Lyndon Johnson passes the Elementary and Secondary Education Act. Prior to that, the federal government didn't really have a role in education, and the idea was with the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, federal funds would be given to schools serving students um, from low income. It was also kind of a carrot used to get schools that were resisting desegregation a reason to desegregate because they could not access the funds unless they did it. Part of this law was that every five years it was reauthorized, and it wasn't didn't necessarily gain huge prominence through the 70s and 80s, but with the election um, in an uncontroversial election, a presidential election in 2000, um, George W. Bush became president and passed the No Child Left Behind <laughs> Act, which was the reauthorization of the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, which held accountability measures. And the accountability is what we have come to know because of how it was written in the law, standardized testing. Um, five years later, it became race to the top, and now it is currently the Every Student Succeed or Every Student Succeeds Act. And so ESSA has changed from NCLB because when Bush passed the legislation, it was the federal government determined what was proficiency standards, what was average yearly growth or progress, and now that's determined by the states. So because of that, state plans look a little bit different. Um, and we're going to talk about some of those differences as we go. I don't even know why we need to talk about it, because no child left behind. Like, everyone's caught up now, right? Like, we just, like, they're all proficient, and we all, every, it's, the, no? Okay. Um, so, funny you should say that. The goal was 2014, <laughs> and starting as soon as 2002, states were asking for an extension, which the federal <laughs> government granted because they did not see that as possible. I think that's such an important point, though, because it is one of the major differences between No Child Left Behind and ESSA, which is that, I just, so I'm just going to be your hype man for a second and like echo what you, what you literally just said, and that is in NCLB, the federal government created a pathway, a, a, a magical plan, that would move students within 12 years' time from wherever they were to 100% proficiency. And that time was 2014. In order to do that, they did backwards design to say, if everyone's proficient by 2014 getting X score, then they need to have Y score in 2013 and Z score in 2012. That's it. And, and all the way down the line. And that became a standard metric for adequate yearly progress. So if you were making progress toward your goal of 100% proficiency by 2014, you were improving by 20% or 
every single year. The problem is that 100% proficiency is, I'll say, an aspirational goal and one that people were not prepared to actually meet and a mandate that was not properly funded by the federal government who was setting the mandate. The change with NCLB and ESSA is that ESSA says, okay, we're no longer going to, as a federal government, going to set the standard and set those cut scores. You will do that, and then we'll just make sure that your plan is fair and rigorous enough. And so they turned that power over to the state to set their own benchmarks and to set their own plan for how they wanted to hold schools accountable. Yeah, and so part of the prescription of what they've done that is there's essentially four mandated sections of the Every Student Succeeds Act, and that's that states have high standards, um, assessments to measure those standards, um, accountability in the sense what are their goals, what are their goals for different subgroups of students, and then the accountability system indicators, how are they doing that, and what are the metrics look like because those change between elementary and middle school Mm -hmm. and high school. Um, so to make this kind of abstract thing a little bit more tangible, I think it makes sense to maybe talk about New York's mm-hmm. um, S- or proposed ESSA plan because they were one of the states that sent it in September 18th and get a sense of how this breaks down at the state level. So in terms of standards, what does this mean for New York? Well, there's a change, uh, although not a crazy huge change to the Common Core standards um, in New York State, or at least of the, the ELA standards, which are the, the set that I've and uh, take, math, yeah. And math, yeah, mm-hmm. taken a look at. Um, that um, uh, there's this, um, I don't know, there was a sort of a popular uprising in a way uh, against the Common Core and um, fueled by, I'm not sure what, um, uh, but, uh, you know, part of it... Upper had, and middle class families whose students pa- fail the test, and then therefore it was unfair, and so let's opt out. Great. Um, and, um, but, but I also, um, you know, was able to detect some currents of uh, rejecting the Common Core because they thought it, um, folk thought it, uh, like, federal overreach, mm-hmm. right? How dare you tell me what my student needs to know mm-hmm. or learn. Um, yeah. uh, that said, the New York State standards that are post-Common Core are actually very much still Common Core. Um, Slight tweaks to some standards along the way, but um, for the most part, um, the New York State standards are going to continue to be a list of aspirational skill-based standards um, to say that by the end of year X, students will be able to Y. Um, They're very clearly articulated. Um, They're they're uh, granular in a way that uh, almost becomes challenging from time to time as you try to tease out separate strands from from bigger picture things. But um, really, the 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 standards aren't that different now than they were it's sort of last like, year. <laughs> it's sort of like the Common Core is doing business as the next generation standards. Kind of, yeah. Yeah, but I think you highlight an important thing about both of those standards, essentially that it's skill-based and these are supposed to be complex skills. And so that gets into another interesting part of this because ideally then you're designing your assessment to match those standards. Um, so in terms of New York, what do the assessments look like? The, the tasks themselves may change slightly. There's some language in the plan about reducing the length uh, or uh, aligning them with the new next generation standards, which we know are going to be, if not identical, very, very similar to Common Core. Um, and in terms of assessment, 
it's more of the same. It's ad, uh, it's annual testing in grades three through three through eight in English, language arts, and math. It's um, a requirement that students take one test in those two in those two subjects in high school, and a requirement that students be assessed once in science um, in, in elementary, middle, and high school. All of those assessments have been happening. They're the state test in New York and the regents exams in high school, and those are the subjects that they have been evaluating for the last as many years as I've been around. Yeah, and so as you're listening, you're probably thinking, hey, this doesn't actually sound that different than before. And to this point, it's really not. Where the changes start to come in is in terms of the accountability, because now it is the states that are determining the goals. Um, So for New York, what do those goals look like? One of the big changes in accountability is that New York State has decided to hold schools accountable for more subject areas. In the past, they've adhered closely to, and and, that's, and I'll just back up a second to say, in the last year and a half of transitioning from No Child Left Behind to ESSA, this sort of big question has been that since, you know, for the last uh, eight years, states and state policy has just been following federal guidelines. They've been doing what they've been told. So you didn't have a real sense of what your state people really thought or really believed in or what philosophies they really were adhering to. They were just sort of following orders. Now that the plans are left up to the state, we're really starting to see what where the state's values are and what they agreed with and didn't disagree with, what they agreed with and disagreed with from the federal policies. In New York State, they're actually increasing accountability for other additional content areas. So while they were mandated previously to test in English and math, now that it's up to them, they're adding uh, new assessments in science and social studies. They're adding new criteria for absenteeism or attendance, um, and they're changing some of the policies around English language learners and how they are uh, responsible to taking tests in English or not. So those are some of the changes in accountability. And just to highlight some of those changes that you were saying previously, Mm -hmm. you have the added content. So one of the things that NCLB also kind of mandated was that your uh, data was disaggregated by um, socioeconomic status, by race and ethnicity, um, to really pinpoint to see if this was actually attack or helping those who are most marginalized. Mm-hmm. And so to that point about the changing of assessment of English language learners, previously, right, they were taking the same test and then their progress on that test was being determined at a federal level, mm-hmm. whereas New York State now has the power to say, well, maybe we're going to change this test and figure out when is it appropriate to be in the native language, mm-hmm. when is it appropriate to be in English, and that may change then how we look at the data. That's right. I I mean, I haven't um, been able to read every single line, but what I have um, read from the New York State's plan has been a a lot more attentiveness to the challenges that students who are just learning a language, uh, attentive to those challenges. And um, where in the past I felt that the policies have been unrealistic, Mm -hmm. This creates a little bit more space for students to actually learn language and or uh, take the test in a native language, depending on how long they've been here. So there there are some welcome changes in in the plan as well. 
Um, so for the accountability system indicators, I mean, we've touched on it a little bit briefly. I don't know if there's something that we want to add that's maybe unique about New York State or to give some context there, because this is where it kind of gets muddled because there is so much variability among state to state. Um, I think the easiest thing to pull out is um, for elementary and middle schools, there's often looking at testing numbers. Um, and for high schools, uh, an interest in graduation rates, right? Just because those are different schools, so there are different indicators that mark that success. Yeah, and I think you're bringing up a good point about these um, accountability groups. And at the, at the state level, because they're trying to protect groups that maybe have been typically underserved, you're going to see performance indicated by a, a group called All Students, mm-hmm. which is exactly what it sounds like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all of all of the students in the school or in that cohort um, are are included in that data, and then they're also going to pull out other kinds of subgroups. Um, and those subgroups are sort of identified as uh, groups that have been maybe marginalized or where there's an achievement gap. That's sort of how the language has been. Um, in New York, um, they're pulling out um, students by ethnicity. They pull out um, uh, boys versus girls. They pull out um, if they have are special needs students or if they're else. They pull out if they're so, uh, economically disadvantaged. Mm-hmm. Some of those criteria weigh in on their accountability, and some of them do not. They're just sort of like, oh, here's some interesting information. But one of the things that we've talked about before is that you know, all of these mandates, they really are around protecting students who who are not fully supported, who have, who have been marginalized. Or intended to or protect. Or intended to protect, that's right. Um, but, but when you live in a state like New York, where we actually have a lot of segregation here, so you have a lot of schools that are of one primary ethnicity or are based on mostly people who have the same class, what we see then is you have your all-students group And then, for example, you'll have an economically disadvantaged group, and there will be 100 students in the all-students group and 98 students in the economically disadvantaged group. Number one, that doesn't give you a lot of information about how are we supporting our economically disadvantaged students. They're all economically, that's not a subgroup anymore, right? right? When more than half or three-fourths of your school falls into one of your subgroups, I think we really have to start questioning how fair it is to compare a school that has 98% of students who are economically disadvantaged with a school that has 12% of students that are economically disadvantaged. We're asking questions about, well, how are you serving your economically disadvantaged students in both of those scenarios? Is that a fair comparison when you're talking about the difference between a very small proportion of students and the entire school? And then also the needs that those students have in those two situations is going to be pretty different as well. Yeah, I think the narrative of statistics that you're bringing up that emerges from this test was something that a lot of people have identified as problematic with No Child Left Behind. But Brian, you and I were talking earlier about the interesting use of language regarding high school graduation rates and the idea of a quote-unquote dropout factory actually in federal legislation. I mean, can you speak to why that language would persist and maybe how that can affect people's perceptions of schools in different communities. Yeah, I mean, 
as I was going through the the sort of the notes on the the on ESSA and what they're what they're calling for, um, one of the points was identification of schools in need of improvement, um, uh, and they were calling out uh, the you know the bottom five percent of all schools in a state um, and targeted support schools um, that have students who are consist- consistently underperforming. But then there's this point where they they the language actually says drop out factories. Um, and that was defined as all public high schools in the state failing to graduate one third or more of their students. Um, and um, I mean, just factory, like this notion that of, of or, or just this equating of a school with a, with a factory as if the school were manufacturing or building the dropouts, as if the dropout rate is entirely to do with what's going on in the school and has nothing to do with what's going on in the world outside. Um, I spent yesterday in three 12th grade English classes in the Bronx working on college essays, college application essays. Well, actually, we're not working on college application essays anymore. We're working on personal essays because when the teacher and I pitched it as college application essays, the majority of the students said, why am I writing a college application essay? I'm not going to apply to college. And when we asked them, why not? They're like, well, I can't go to college because I can't get in. I can't go to college because I can't afford it. I can't go to college because I have to get a job. I can't, can't, can't. That's the narrative That's in the this narrative. school, right? And so, okay, good thing that the school made these students this way because it's a factory. So there's this just damaging um, script out there mm. um, about uh, school as the, the institution that is making these students drop out. Um, and I just think that's uh, like generally really problematic. Um, yeah, and it, it speaks to a larger issue, which is like, yes, let's talk about what schools can do and should do, but let's also talk about things that schools can't do. Yeah, I think that's an important point because I think a lot of times it's easy to look at something like um, No Child Left Behind or the Every Student Succeeds Act and say, yes, we have this unequal education, so there should be some kind of a system for accountability and we should measure that. But it seems that these measures are created in an idealized world where the school is decontextualized Mm -hmm. from the society with which it lives in. And so then when you see a school that is not dropping out, you turn you create the term dropout factory as opposed to recontextualizing the school within the society that it lives in yeah. and i think with some of the trends that we see emerging in some of these state policies that's something that facially seems to be like a really great indicator but when you dig a little deeper seems problematic so of the 50 plans that have been submitted so far 36 of the states and Washington, D.C. have put a focus on absenteeism. Uh, Rhode Island has even focused on teacher absenteeism as a metric of how schools are doing. And I'm just curious, given the conversation that we just had, how we feel about that. I think it's incredibly important. Um, I I have often asked, um, if, if, if I were a personal trainer and I prescribed a workout regimen for a client and then they didn't do the workout or they didn't show up at the gym is that my fault as a personal trainer same thing with a dietitian a psychologist a, a counsel uh, you know a, a priest right so what 
what do we expect of schools and what do we expect of teachers? And if what we expect of them is to address the, dr- the, the absenteeism rate, to uh, somehow inspire and encourage students to show up, right? Well, h- how do you do that is a big, big question. And it, 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 it speaks to the larger issue of what is the perceived value of schooling mm-hmm. in society. And um, if the perceived value of schooling is quite low, then the school's credibility or the school's ability to do this reach out is, is outreach is hampered. Um, if there were some, uh, some dedicated set of resources to, uh, to go out into the, to the communities and go out into, into the neighborhoods and meet the students where they are and encourage them to attend, that would be an effort that could be made, but schools can't do that right now. They don't have the resources to do that. Um, also, though, there's nothing to say that that effort would actually bear fruit. Um, it might bear some, but the the so uh, teachers with whom I work are very frustrated um, by the fact that you know, for example, you can't plan a multi-day lesson or project because you don't know how many students are going to show up day to day, um, and uh, uh, the problem with chronic absenteeism is is just a it's just a hard nut to crack i wanted to, to build on what you guys are saying and with a different perspective and it comes from something that you mentioned matt around the intended right mm-hmm. what like what's the intent or the you know what what are they trying to accomplish with the policies and i think that we can agree that the the attempt to support students who've been marginalized and to provide protections is well-intentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, but the methodology that is being used with a focus on testing across content areas every single year, I think that there are some unintended consequences of that. Uh, and, and those consequences set off a spiral or a cycle um, that that actually defeats the purpose of the intention, right? So if I'm uh, coming in below grade level or with some struggling skills or I'm not uh, fully prepared uh, when I'm entering into school and then I end up taking that test and not doing well, I begin to fail. Mm-hmm. And when I begin to feel, fail, I begin hearing messages to myself uh, from the test, from the teacher, from my parents, and from my own self that say, you're not good at this, you're not worthy, you're not going to be able to pass the next time, you're not good at school, you're not good at math, you're not good, you're not good, you're not good. And that creates a mindset. Research um, across the board shows that students who drop out, over 50% of the reasons that students drop out is because they didn't think that they could pass their courses. They didn't think their teacher liked them. They didn't think that they were going to be able to graduate or go to college. It didn't say they didn't have the skills. It said they did not perceive themselves as having the skills. And there are a lot of things that go into the narrative that you're talking about, Brian. Well, when I don't think that I'm going to pass, why would I think it's important to show up? Mm -hmm. And so now that narrative that I have going on, that cycle of failure, then pulls me out of class. It pulls me out of the school. And then the test comes around again, and I haven't done what I needed to do, and I don't have confidence in myself, and so then I fail again, and then I fail again, and then I fail again, and I fail again. And then all of those failures add up to my not being able to move forward, to my school being disciplined, 
because they weren't able to reach me. And it's this sort of system, it's a cycle that's going on in the background. It's sort of running and running and running and running and running. And it sets up a false narrative about the work that kids are trying to do and the work that schools are trying to do to learn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I think <clears throat> both of what you guys said actually makes us need to step back for a second because we've talked about uh, four prescribed strands of the Every Student Succeeds Act, but there's actually five strands. And that fifth one is optional for states to choose what to measure in terms of effectiveness of schools reaching students. And that could be essentially whatever states wanted. And given the conversations that you two have just listed, a lot of people believed that states would opt into some kind of uh, metric of the social and emotional health of students within their school or some other non-academic marker to make that something that was a priority that could receive federal funding, that could be initiated in policy, that could create something going forward. Instead, what we've seen happen is no state has submitted a plan that looks to measure or create accountability measures for social and emotional health, but instead has essentially doubled down on testing. Roberta mentioned earlier that part of New York State's changes in what they are going to be testing is that it's no longer English and math, but science and social studies. Those science and social studies tests are that fifth strand, in a way, for New York State. They've decided to expand that testing. Now, there is a little bit of a catch here, because the way that the law is written, schools or states that opt into testing for science are more likely to receive more money because of the push from federal governments and programs for STEM programs, which then creates money, which is also similar to the choice policies that are not prescribed in the Every Student Succeeds Act. However, if states opt into adopting these choice policies or innovation for more school choice, whether that be charters, private schools, voucher systems or something else, they receive more money. And so what we see is the federal government, even though giving these states the autonomy, still shaping or influencing Mm -hmm. what that policy looks like. But I think it's also critical that, you know, this was a key moment where states could have said, we are going to pay attention to the social context that is maybe making it hard for students to believe that school is successful. We are going to pay attention to absenteeism and the factors behind it, not just whether or not there are students in a chair. I'm not sure if that makes sense. Well, it does, but I, 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 I can't help but pick up on two threads there. Number one is we're not going to pay attention to social-emotional wellness of the student, and that's just horrific. <laughs> but then the thing that also seems to be horrific for me is nowhere in ESSA does it speak to social studies. Yes, New York State is bringing it into mm-hmm. the mix, but the problems are historic problems, right? They are, the, the, and the, the solution is disassociated somehow from the historical context. Mm-hmm. Yet, we don't want our students to learn their history, the history of problematic social decisions that have been made in this country. <laughs> and then we don't want to learn, we don't want our students to learn civics, their rights, and how they can be engaged in changing those damaging social structures that got us into this position in the first place. So by taking social studies out of the mix, not only are we just throwing out context and just saying, oh, this is just a problem. Who knows how it got this way? And we're also saying that you, we're not helping students learn how they can participate in a process that can 
change things along the way. So let's talk about that as a, a, a kind of a civic problem of like we're we're not helping people become good citizens, mm-hmm. but then also we're not helping them be um, healthy and and well adjusted people by paying attention to their social emotional growth. So I mean the the choices that are made by the federal government um, speak to I think the priorities which are to me seem to entrench current structures of power. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Going along with that idea, because I do understand why someone would say, hey, that, that's not true. This is meant as an equality measure. So, hey, not- that's not true. <laughs> this was meant as an equality measure. Nine independent re- reviewers from the former Bush administration, Obama administration, and current Trump administration are independent reviewers who have been reviewing these state plans. And all of them have rated these category or the different categories of states plans on a scale <clears throat> of 1 to 5 and there has been a 5 earned in at least one state plan on every category except no state has earned a 5 for what they are going to do to provide high quality education for all students and looking at different state plans for instance uh, Georgia's state plan has proposed that schools give credit um, on the overall ratings for enrolling disadvantaged students. So a student of a low socioeconomic status, a minority student, a student with a disability, but that there's actually no progress required for them on these accountability measures. So basically, if a student is marginalized, you get points for enrolling them, but then there is no expectation that you do anything with or for them. In Florida state plan, there is no differentiation for reaching different groups of students, and they have not asked for a waiver to allow that to happen. Instead, they've said there's a workaround in their plan that will educate all students. Oh, yeah. So apparently Florida has the review. And New York State, which is a plan that I think we have said some nice things about, these reviewers have said New York has created a great incentive um, for helping students to meet grade level standards and to do well in these tests, but that there's actually not a prescribed plan for helping to meet those incentives to then continue this creation of success. So even though the intention of this plan, even going back to 1965, is to create greater educational equality, now that this power has been returned to the states as a departure from No Child Left Behind, that is being lost in a lot of state plans. I think a lot of the reason that there isn't clarification on what's your plan to be able to support all students, and when we say all students, we don't just mean the general public. What we mean are students from a wide, diverse range of, of, of academic needs, academic and social needs. Um, So we're talking not about like all the kids, but we're talking about the pockets of different kinds of kids and all the different kinds of kids that you're going to see in your classroom, in your school, in your city. But the the reason that we don't see a clarification around how we're going to do that is because they don't know, (laughs) right? Because we've spent so much time trying to force people to hold their schools accountable because the narrative about teaching is that you could do better if you wanted to, but you just don't want to, mm-hmm. right? That, 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 oh, if you worked a little bit harder or if you cared about your job or if you cared about the kids, your school would be better off. Your kids would be better off. They wouldn't be dropping out if you cared a little bit more. 
And we spent so much time trying to hold them accountable and saying, oh, well, if we, if we pay you more money, will you do better work then? Or if we threaten to fire you, will you do better work then? And what they have not yet considered um, on a policy level, I'm not saying individual people haven't mm-hmm. considered it, but on a policy level, on a public relations narrative level, they have not considered how do you do that? So let's talk about absenteeism. Sorry to go backtrack there, but like that's a great example. So absenteeism is huge. Every educator will agree with you that you can't teach someone who's not in the room. So how does a school, how does a high school increase their attendance when, they're, when 10% of their class has never shown up? When they call home and, there's, and the number is disconnected, they have one person who can once a week go out and do home visits and nobody lives there anymore. What are they to do? And how fair is it that they're going to be held responsible for the data of a student who has never shown up once or who showed up three times and then moved away but didn't tell anybody? Once a child is on your roster, there are very few things that you can do to get them off of your roster. And so the enrollment of your school becomes critical to how it's performing. You want to see a a, a school that performs well? You look at their number of special education and ELL students. The bigger those numbers, the more that school is going to show up like they're struggling. The smaller those numbers, the better the school is going to look. You could swap out the staffs. You could change everybody all around, and it's going to look the same. Because we don't really know yet. that We don't have great scripts. We don't have great protocols yet. What we need to do is stop trying to carrot everybody and stick everybody and really get in there with them. Get in there with people, side by side, in the classroom, with the teacher, with the kids, sitting down with them and saying, man, miss, what are we going to do about these kids who don't want to go to college? Let's figure it out together. Let's think about these strategies together because the accountability, while I think we do need to have standards and expectations, it's, uh, it, it, it ignores that we don't really have plans to solve some of these problems. Yeah, and I think to maybe reduce the brilliance of what you just said is that this policy focuses on outputs, not inputs. Mm-hmm. So we put people in school, we shake it around and we see what pops out Mm -hmm. instead of thinking about what's going in, not just in terms of resources, um, but living environments, um, different, you know, possible uh, variations or issues that students are bringing to school and, and how to navigate those. So, I mean, I don't know, is this an issue of an educational policy trying to remedy a social inequality that then creates a circularity because the school can't fix what the school is not necessarily connected to? I don't know that the educational policy is trying to solve the social inequality. I think the educational policy is trying to keep politicians in office. Um, I think that they need to be seen to be doing something about a problem that that the public is rightly <clears throat> nervous about. Um, and, you know, saying accountability in the form of standardized tests is just sort of the lowest hanging fruit to say it's like saying tough on crime <laughs> it's 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 empty words um, to say that that we're gonna we're gonna come down on those failing schools without addressing the actual underlying historical mm-hmm. problem mm-hmm. well and and I think that the it lacks um, 
it lacks some of the pragmatism. So I'll say I'll give I'll give the policymakers the benefit of the doubt and say you are trying to you know let's imagine you are trying to do something that's good for kids. You are trying to do something that's right for kids and not just sort of support your own um, endeavors. Let's take the policy, the practices that we know are good practices, collaborative inquiry and, and, and teacher sort of critical reflection, and we can take all those things, and they're being built into expectations for teachers, but not, none of the other expectations are being lifted, and so we're trying to push more and more and more onto the teacher's responsibility, uh, onto the teacher's plate. Uh, and not taking anything off. We're not taking, we're not balancing out the hard and deep work that they have to do with the other expectations. We're just piling more and more and more on them and going, well, good luck. Uh, and then when they're not able to meet those goals, it's a, it feels like it's a slap on the wrist or it's your job that's at stake. And at, on a lot of these states, the amount that teachers are getting paid, it's no surprise that they're facing a teacher shortage because people are going to badmouth you. <laughs> You're not going to get paid that much. And, and being in the classroom is really, really hard work. You're not there for a long time if you don't really love kids or if you don't really care about the work. So I'm not surprised when we're starting to see um, things that come up that saying that they're having a hard time filling vacancies because it's a really hard it's a really hard industry to break into right now because of these negative narratives. So I, we've spent a lot of time actually talking about the policy itself and kind of the implications of the policy, and I think some very fair criticisms of the policy, but I think it maybe before we wrap up the conversation, it's also good to talk about the process that these plans have gone through. So there was a deadline, I believe it was last February, or excuse me, last March or April, and then the final deadline, if you didn't hit the early de- deadline, was sep- September 18th. So 17 plans, I think, met the early deadline and essentially have been passed in. What people have found was that the states that submitted early, um, the S- F- Department of Education flagged areas for revision. Uh, there were some areas where they pushed harder, um, and then some critiques that maybe things weren't as ambitious as they should have been. And they found that those states made some changes, but not really, and then resubmitted the plans. Um, there's also been contention at the state level because state legislatures and governors have decried the plans that their states have put forward, but because of a change to the law that Betsy DeVos made as Secretary of Education, the state governing body no longer has to sign off on the educational plan. So if the state superintendent sends an educational plan to the federal government and the federal government okays it, it becomes the policy of that state. This, I think, creates some kinds of communication issues because if the state is not connected to its districts or its cities or the schools, then legislation is happening and schools might not know what's going on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <Yes>. yeah. <laughs> Did you want to give your example? Which the principal example? and the standards. Oh. Which one? The principal and the standards. Doesn't know about the new Oh, standards. right. So, sorry. No, I know. We're trying to wrap up. I I think that this is so crucial because the communication that flows 
um, from the state level to the district level to the principal level to the teacher level to this to the classroom. I mean, that's a long line. That's a, you know, I've played the game telephone, <laughs> right? You start by saying like, "Can you get me something from the store?" and and you end with like, you know, "Gosh, that teacher's such a bore." <laughs> that's not what I said at all. So the line of communication um, from from teachers up the chain to the state and the state down the chain to the teachers is extremely important. Um, and what we're finding, because there are such there are these all of these gaps uh, in communication, because they're they're rushing to get approval for a plan that's essentially taking effect when they submit their plan, when they submit their proposal. Right, this plan is supposed to be in effect this year. Right, so so new standards have taken effect this year. And I was in a school yesterday, and I mentioned, oh yeah, well the new state standards. And the principal looked at me of a great school and a great principal. And looked at me and said, oh, what what are those? What, is that happening sometime? When, when is that happening? And I thought, oh, well, I think it's already happened. <laughs> but there's no communication. And there hasn't been much communication from the district level uh, or from the state level beyond sort of po- up, updates on their news feed around our ESSA plan and our new standards. There's not been a rollout. There's not been massive communication. There's not been an adoption. Um, and it's very possible that they're saying, well, well, we're going to sort of put it in place on paper, but not really hold anybody accountable for a while until we roll out. But even there's not a, a plan communicating what the plan is. And, and that's going to create a lot of confusion. And what's challenging is that we just went through a whole period of challenging communication with the Common Core standards, you know, put into, put into action and held people accountable, and they had no idea what the standards were. And, and, and that created five or six years of backlash. And I think eventually that's, it was the narrative, not the standards themselves, but the narrative about the standards that created so much angst between parents and schools and, 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 uh, the, and the policymakers. So this communication piece is extremely important. If people don't know about it, if people don't understand what's changing or why it's changing or what its intention is supposed to be, there's no way that they can actually implement anything uh, in, in their scope of work or in, in their field of influence. Yeah, and so, I mean, I think, you know, that just adds another layer to the conversation. But we are short on time. So are there final thoughts that maybe didn't get shared out that we want to leave someone to think about ESSA going forward or to know about ESSA going forward? I, I, I think the biggest thing about ESSA and the state plans and, you know, I, I take it all the way down to the, to the teacher level because those are the folk with whom we work. Um, ultimately, what it means is your kids have to pass standardized tests. That's the bottom line if you're a teacher. And knowing that um, this is a thing that exists, the horrible temptation is to teach to the test, to the dreaded teach to the test. Um, I would encourage teachers and students to think about it as um, it's a game. (laughs) It's a game that you have to play. Um, It's a game that you have to play because there are gatekeepers to allow you to certain opportunities. And with every game, there are rules. And if you don't know the rules of the game, you can't win the game. I think right now about like innovators in sports, like people who like football wide receivers who learn to drag their toes to catch that ball that was out of bounds, right? Mm-hmm. So what's the equivalent of that for teachers and students? How do you drag your toes in bounds on the standardized test to get that extra point to get you to graduate and to keep the ball rolling toward some some educational attainment that is desired, um, that is within reach, 
Um, and uh, people may not know that or believe that, but how do we sort of just teach the rules of the game as rules of a game? They're not determinations of who you are or who you can be or what's possible, but... Yeah, the the standardized testing regime has is can, roll, rolls alive on. and well. It's alive and well, and it's a and it's a huge industry. Like, it, it, I don't think it's going anywhere anytime soon because educational publishers are raking in money hand over fist over it, and that's just how these things work. But ultimately, um, to if I were a teacher full time right now, I would say to my students, "Hey, let's learn the rules of this game so that we can crush it." Yeah, I, I want to build on that and say. Let's also not be surprised when we find out that the game is a little bit more like craps and a little less like football. Oh, yeah. That, 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 that there are parts of the game that are rigged against uh, and in favor of the house. Football's rigged, too. Oh, there we go. Um, but I, I will have my final thought be more on the positive side, which is that... <laughs> slightly positive side, which is that I am glad that states will be able to not only... Um, be able to stay, say what their their views are, but also be held accountable for those views, at least to their own stakeholders, mm-hmm. right? That they have to, they can't just look blindly follow, they have to really um, put something out there. And when I review the plan for New York, like I'm, I'm proud to be a New Yorker uh, with this plan in place. Um, it's a plan, it's idealistic, it's often aspirational, and I'm not really sure if it's attainable. But I think that there are some good ideas in here that can go a long way if they're implemented um, soundly, humanely. Um, and, and so I'm happy to consider what the implications of these plans and these intentions look like for our schools. Yeah, I think for me, it's actually just a quick harken back to last week's podcast about social and emotional health and thinking you know, we talked a lot about how the policy is focused on this academics and leaves all these other things to the side. But there's nothing to say that you can't try to work within your school to also pay attention to those things while you're trying to identify the rules of the game and keep your feet in. And there's no question that that's an almost impossible task to be able to do for every student to find a way as a teacher to do it that you can continue to like have a life and sleep but with a whole building collectively working together, it, it opens up the possibility. And it's unfair to fall back on teachers in some ways in that way. But I don't know if there's necessarily an alternative. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks so much for listening. And we'll be make sure to say something cool for you next week. Bye. Bye. <laughs> yeah.